Thank you for downloading this episode of the 155 Podcast, the public records interview series of all candidates in Hamilton's 2018 municipal election. For more election coverage, visit thepublicrecord.ca where you can sign up for our City Hall newsletter. Episode 17, Don Danko, Incumbent, Ward 7, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board Trustee. Ms. Danko has been acclaimed and will serve the upcoming term on the school board. Don Danko, you have been acclaimed as the Ward 7 Hamilton Wentworth District School Board Trustee. Congratulations on being acclaimed to another four-year term on the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board. Welcome to the Public Records, the 155 podcast. Thank you very much for having me. As you're acclaimed, we're going to have a different format than the other interviews. We're going to have a discussion about the role of trustee, about your experiences on the board, and thoughts on the role of trustee in general. First, for the listeners who are not from Ward 7, and even those who are, could you tell us who is Don Danko? Oh, I'm the Ward 7 trustee for the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, so that's the public board. I will be the Ward 7 trustee moving forward, even though the boundaries have changed. But the area that I represent is a little bit smaller, and it's adjusted slightly at different ends. A bit of trivia here for listeners. Where you live right now is in the present Ward 7. That's correct. The new boundaries for Ward 7 have shifted. So you will continue to represent Ward 7, but you now live just over the boundary in the new Ward 8. It has been common for school board trustees to remain representing the majority of the ward that they were elected to when ward boundaries change. So interestingly, in this boundary change, you end up representing Ward 7 and living just outside of the boundary. Ward 4 school board trustee, the longest serving municipal politician in Hamilton right now, Ray Maholland, shifts back and he now again lives in Ward 4. Oh, that's interesting. So, But it makes a lot more sense because I, I never quite understood why he was not living in the ward that he represented. When Ray was first elected in 1972, Rosedale was part of Ward 4. The 1985 ward boundary changes moved Rosedale into Ward 5. And the current boundary change moves it back into Ward 4. A side note here on living outside of boundaries. At one point, there were four or five of the school board trustees, so four or five of the 11, who lived in Ward 5. Wow. Eleanor Johnstone, who represented Ward 3. Lillian Orban, who represented Ward 7. Canon Joe Rogers, represented Ward 5. Ray Mulholland, who represented Ward 4. And I don't actually remember if there was really a fifth. I can't remember if there was, so it could have just been four. And if there was a fifth, it was 20 years ago. I don't remember clearly. Our listeners just got a little bit of history of the board there. And uh, this has been your first term on the board. What was it like having your first term and being a rookie trustee? I would say... It had its ups and downs. It was exciting. There was a supportive team, but it was challenging in a number of ways. And as much as I did my research and I did my homework and I read up on the role of the trustee, I had been to board meetings for about a year before I ran, I still wasn't really prepared for the limitations of the role. I didn't have a a full understanding of how much the province controls at the school board and that whole divide between trustees setting high-level policy and strategic directions but everything that's operational, you can't touch. And that to me is frustrating. I come from a healthcare background. I'm in education now. Um, I care about how things are operationalized. 
And when we set policy, we do have an intention. We have a vision in mind about what that's going to look like on the ground. So to not be able to then control those procedures that follow from the policies, I would say is probably one of the most challenging, possibly the most frustrating thing that I've, I've found. The other side of it was just the learning curve. Because one, you, you're coming into an organization where if you're not part of it before being a trustee, aside from being a parent, uh, I didn't study the policies, but you have this pre-existing history, as you've mentioned some of it already, that I wasn't aware of. There's policies you need to learn. There's previous motions on the books from the previous board of trustees um, that have to be honored in operational plans. And so we sometimes stop and say, wait a minute, why are we doing this? Oh, well, the previous board of trustees passed a motion four years ago, and we're finally implementing it now. You can imagine that now I'm accountable for that operationalizing of a previous motion that I wasn't part of, that I may not agree with. But the Code of Ethics says I have to tote the board line. I have to, I can say that I personally disagree with something, but I have to support the direction of the board. All of those things combined, the learning curve, the, the limitations of the role, made it challenging to be responsive to the needs of people that were reaching out to me in the community. That is something interesting about the school board. It's an institution that does move slowly, but there's so much history there as well. Uh, take, for example, the home and school. A lot of parents join when their kids are in JK, SK, grade one. Right. And these parents remain involved as their children go through from K to 12, 12, 13, 14 years they're involved. And you come in as the rookie trustee. That must be interesting because I remember when I was involved as a student that the home and school would bring up things that occurred in the 80s. Right. And, and I wasn't in Hamilton in the 80s, so I don't have that history. I've, I've learned a fair amount of it. But it's also interesting when you've got people that are in a system where we play a lot of telephone tag. So if you can imagine, we set a policy at the trustee level, procedures are set from that, they're disseminated to principals who then let the teachers know. Sometimes you've got the union voice in there. And it filters down maybe to school council is what we're now calling parent council or home and school is a bit separate. But school council then hears it from the principal. It's the third or fourth or fifth iteration of whatever the, the policy or the procedure is that they're discussing. You can imagine that sometimes it's not quite right. And so there's misinformation that gets passed down that way because we don't have clear, comprehensive way to get that information out to all of the players, all of our stakeholders. And we try. We have subscriptions to the school board website. You can subscribe to your school website. But again, Depending on where the message originates and then who's actually pushing that message out at the school level, there are a couple of layers that can interfere with the interpretation. So I was on a school council at my child's school, and we discovered after being on it for a year or two, I started looking at the rules. And I started reading up, because I was running for trustee, I started reading up on what are the regulations surrounding school council from the ministry's perspective. And it turns out we weren't following half of them. There's no ill intent. It was just a lack of information. And so we do have a very large system. We've got over 100 schools. You can imagine it's hard to maintain that clear information for many, many different groups. And when you've got history, you've got people that are adamantly sure that X, Y, and Z is the way things work, but they changed maybe five years ago. So you're always battling against that. Because when someone's sure they know something, you 
tend not to want to challenge them just for the sake of challenging them. The Education Act's interesting. It's a huge document. The amount of Ontario regulations that go with it. Uh, people think they see me tweet about the Municipal Act and go, wow, that guy really knows the Act. The Municipal Act is much, is simple compared to the Education Act. And many people don't realize this because they would assume that the trustees have a great deal of power, a great deal of ability to do things. The Education Act actually prescribes in great detail when you're allowed to be out of school and even greater detail when you're not allowed to be out of school. So as a trustee, you can't just show up at a school. A parent can't say, I have a problem on the playground. You should come and see the playground. There's a whole policy and procedure to you going onto a schoolyard. Right. And if you build relationships with principals at schools, that's not necessarily an issue. As trustees, we do have to respect boundaries that are set for us by the ministry. And that does sometimes limit the ability for us to influence decisions, to advocate for people. So often when I get a call, it is someone looking for a solution. But they're often looking for a solution in a domain that I have no control over. So the best I can do is connect them with the right people to ask the same question, advocate on their behalf, and try to bring their case forward in a very non-biased way. So that's not about my child, it's about a family and their situation. And then, of course, always recognizing that if the solution costs money, we have to have a balanced budget. We are underfunded. So that is always going to be a challenge if there's money attached to whatever that solution would be. Speaking about underfunded, what is the pay right now for a school board trustee? They just increased the honorarium. So it's not technically a paycheck. And I think it's somewhere around 13000 for a trustee who is not a chair or vice chair. If you're a chair or vice chair, there's a lot of additional hours that are expected of you. So they get somewhere around 21000 and I think 17000 But the, the base rate for trustees, it hasn't changed in, what, 20 years? And then the additional funds that we get above the base rate is based on the number of students in the board. So we've had declining enrollment for the past 10 plus years. It's just starting to rebound. So basically what trustees got paid in 2006 is the same that I get now. What I'm getting at there is I don't think people realize that it is de facto a volunteer job. Because when you think about the amount of hours that you have to put in. Yes. (laughs) That you're on call almost constantly. Yeah. And what's the cost of child care, of meals? You don't get to expense your meals when you're out on the road going between events. It really is, it's both a forgotten job and it's almost as if you pay people to serve as trustee. Uh, yes, <laughs> that that is a bit of a challenge and I can see why the trustee role is appealing to people who are retired, who want to give back to the community, who want to be involved. They have the time. They presumably have a pension, and so this is just additional money. But the problem when you have a board of trustees that are all similar is that you you don't have a diverse set of skills. You don't have diverse voices at the table. And I would say that the best thing you could have on a board is diversity so that you are thinking of things from different angles, that you are hearing voices of different people in the community. We had a number of people that came on as new trustees this past term who were working parents. Um, so they had the parent piece where you, you needed to make sure that you had childcare or you, somebody was at home. They were working full-time jobs and then doing this on top of that. So when I get a call, 
I, I do have on my message that it will be up to two business days before I will, will return your call. And I had to do that so that I could get some sleep <laughs> because I, I work full time. I have two kids, but I don't have an office assistant, as, as I think we were talking about before we started this. I'm not a city councilor. And, and so most people, when they call a trustee, they want to meet at my office. I don't have an office. I have a space in the Ed Center that I can show up and meet other trustees, but I, I don't have an office. So they don't understand the limitations that we have as trustees and that it is really, truly closer to a volunteer position with a little bit of perks. There are condo board members who make more money on a condo board than the trustee does being mm -hmm. stewards of our children's education. It is surprising. What might surprise people, too, is that as an individual trustee, you don't have any power on your own. You don't have a discretionary budget you look after. It's not like being a city councillor. Well, the Municipal Act says that councillors have no power individually. In practice at City Hall, there's a whole other dynamic. But at the board, as trustee, you can't get involved in any decisions individually. You can't even nudge, nudge, wink, wink staff in a direction you want to go. And where I'm going with this is that, for example, French immersion. Everybody wants French immersion in their neighborhood school. And as a trustee, you have to work with the rest of the board and you have to allocate resources board-wide. For example, we are seeing French immersion being moved into high-priority needs such as in the North End. And that comes with resources and is enabling the renovation of that, some capital improvements to that school. As a trustee, how do you do that balancing act between representing a ward yet being responsible for the entire system of education across Hamilton? That's a great question because it is, it is a challenge. So you're elected to represent a subset of the city, a certain population, but all of the decision-making that we do has to benefit the entire system. So that's where school closure decisions can be very unpopular, but... It's based on what are the needs of the system, where are the students in the system, how do we provide quality buildings for all of our students within a limited budget. French immersion is an interesting one. I don't get requests for that because I have two French immersion schools in my ward and within a fairly small distance, but that's one of the areas that I, I take issue with, French immersion overall, for a number of reasons. And so if I can just deviate and go there, French immersion, unfortunately, creates a divide. It creates a two-tiered system where if a student is academically able, parents are going to choose, if it's an option in their home school or a nearby school, they're going to choose French immersion about 90% of the time. And they're going to choose it because they feel that learning a second language is going to be beneficial for their child. You want to give your, your children a leg up if possible and in any way you can. But then what, it, what does it leave in the English class? So when I'm thinking most of our schools are dual track, which means they have, you know, somewhere around 50% English classes and 50% French immersion. That's the ideal. It ends up shifting so that it can be more French immersion classes than English or vice versa. But you can imagine some of the kids who are not academically inclined at early ages might have behavioral issues. They might have special needs. They may be just delayed because when we're talking about grade ones, you've got a big range when you think of um, a five-year-old who turns five in January versus December. Like they're developing so much over that time that um, they just may be delayed, but it means that you have a higher proportion of, of kids with different needs in the English classroom versus the French classroom. It creates a divide within the school. It divides parents. It makes the English classroom more challenging. And so I don't really believe that we should be 
supporting something that divides families, students, schools, communities to give an advantage to one group over another. And that's truly what it ends up doing. The other challenge is we're not actually funded for French immersion. The ministry has no real stance on French immersion. They don't fund, give us additional funding for transportation, and it does create additional transportation cost burden. So without that stance from the ministry, we're left to our own devices to decide how many schools do we have, do we offer it, what grades do we offer it in. And I would like to see us not get rid of it. I, I know that there is a demand for it, but I would like us to see us looking at all students in our system. So if developing a second language is beneficial at an early age for this group of students that attend French immersion, is it not also beneficial for all students? How might we integrate second language development in grade one for all students and move French immersion up to grade two, three, or four? I believe they moved it up to grade two or three in the Halton board. I think the longer we keep students together in the early grades and build that community, the more effective we will be for the entire school, for all students. Again, I would like to see some changes to French immersion. I think there are specific challenges related to it, related to funding, but also related to equity. And I know that we've got challenges with ESL, so English as a second language learners. We've got some schools that have 50 languages spoken within the school. I understand that, but the idea that for half of our students or students in English-speaking schools, we don't, we don't remotely introduce the idea of developing a second language. That, to me, is a problem. This is a good segue to an issue that you will face in the coming term as a trustee, and that's the opening of the new North High School with the stated goal of seeing that school offer a full range of programs and to relocate programs of excellence into the new North High School, both vocational and academic. I should start by disclosing that I sat on school board transition committees when the city and county board were merged in the 90s. I was part of the committee vote, the transition committee vote, which changed the program strategy that led us to where we are today. The context of the time, the new Cathedral High School opens in the mid-90s, and the public board loses a lot of students from Scott Park to the new Cathedral. Scott Park was a brutalist architecture building, not a very attractive building in terms of layout and how it looked. And you had this brand new facility with everything new, top of the line at Cathedral. And in 1997, you have Bill 160. And Bill 160 changed the funding formula. Now everything was based per student. So every student the public board was losing was funding. With the best of intentions, with the best of information, the decision is made to start creating programs of excellence. This is how the public board is going to keep students in the lower city, is offering them the opportunity to go to programs of excellence at Sherwood, Westmount, Westdale. The result is that academic students start taking those programs, especially Westmount. Delta High School, as it loses academic students, the number of academic courses it's offering decreases. Same at Churchill, at Scott Park the decisions made to close Scott Park. And now we fast forward to today, the decisions been made to close Delta, Sir John A, build this new North High School, make this new North High School a place of excellence. And parents in the lower city, I know many, they value being able to send their kids to Westmount, to Sherwood, to Westdale. How are you going to make sure that the new North High School succeeds, that we actually do enforce these new catchments and ensure that the new North High School has comprehensive programming? 
So that's a good question, and it's important to have the context. And it does highlight one of the challenges of a trustee is you get all of the information you can. You often do your own homework and research, and you make the best decision you can, but you don't always know what the domino effect is going to be. We often can't predict some of the unexpected effects of a decision. So I do say, like you mentioned, we make decisions with the best intentions. They don't always work out. We have a very clear policy on our catchments, on where students are slated to go to school. To attend Westmount, for example, you would have to be in French immersion in those areas, or you would go to Sherwood for French immersion, and that is a way to go to those schools. If you are English-speaking, you are expected to go to your in-catchment school. By the time it's built, I think families will have time to prepare for a shift. If there's going to be a transition from one school to another, that's always challenging. Change is challenging for everyone. Remarkably, it's often more challenging for parents than for students. And I hate to say that because we heard that over and over again when we heard about school closures, but I can tell you it's true. I've seen students go through transitions when they have to shift schools and when schools amalgamate. They're very resilient. They're happy to make new friends. And, you know, they're, they're sad to leave a school behind, but they really, they, they do well. In terms of programming, we are committed to having all of the required programming at every school on the board, even when it's undersubscribed. Even if we don't quite have the student numbers, we are committed to making sure that all of the pathways that a student might want to take are available. The other thing that we're doing is there's something called SHISM programs that you may have heard of. So that's specialist high skills majors. And we want to have at least three of those in every high school. Those are programs, they're bundles of courses that might be related to manufacturing, or they might be related to hospitality, or they might be related to another service industry or healthcare. And by taking that bundle of courses, you're getting your high school credits, but you're forming your education around a specific area of interest, and it might help you to access university or college or the trades. We've already been successful in ensuring, I think we have two schisms at a minimum at every high school, and we will have three at the New North Secondary possibly a fourth one. And that was a provincial initiative, but it is working at providing students with different opportunities to take different levels of courses to make sure that they feed into their interests so that they're better engaged. So I'm not really concerned about the quality of the program that's being offered. When I was running, I would have liked to have seen us have open enrollment like the Catholic Board does. Because I truly believe that if you're offering a quality location, a well-maintained building, quality teaching, and quality programming, students will go to their home school, 90% of them. Until we get past some of the history and some of the reputations that schools have, we can offer all of that, and people will choose not to go to their home school in some areas of the city. But I do think once we establish that we have a really high-quality school, high-quality programming that students can be successful at down at the New North, I do think we need to look at opportunities to create more open catchments and open boundaries and stop painting boxes around schools and saying, you must go here. You should go there because you want to. It improves student engagement. It improves student success. It improves attendance. I, I think that's where we need to go eventually. We're just not there yet. I find it interesting that you note that the Catholic Board does have open enrollment. And I, I like to explore open enrollment a little bit. I have to say I'm conflicted on this in that I was fortunate to be able to go to Glendale for my high school, even though I didn't live in the catchment. It was a matter of when I was initially enrolled for high school, 
I lived in the catchment by the time September rolled around. My foster home had changed. I was on the West Mountain. And I would bounce around a lot until grade 10. Then I was stable for about a year and a half. And then I moved out on my own. But during that entire time, I didn't live in the catchment. However, I have a knee-jerk reaction to open enrollment. And that's based upon the history that I experienced, you know, where with the best of intentions, we changed the program strategy and we let people start going to Westmount. And the result is the closure of Scott Park and now the closure of Delta and Sir John A. McDonald for the new high school. So my knee-jerk reaction is we, we can't give that freedom. Uh, it can't possibly work. And... Well, actually, you know, you've you've already answered this, uh, so there's no follow-up. Well, I can highlight the challenges are we want all schools to be great schools. I actually hate that phrase. It, it, it just sounds, it, it's pie in the sky, all schools are great schools. Well, no, they're, they're not. We're working towards that. And what we're doing to try to create that, that situation where all schools are great schools is by forcing families from a specific area to go to a specific school. When we've done our job, and all schools are great schools, and they all have a great reputation, and you can access excellent programming everywhere, we will be in a position where we, we don't have to force the boundaries. I personally believe if a student can walk to a school, they should be able to go to that school. That is not the case right now, which leads to additional transportation problems. We're underfunded for transportation. We've got challenges with the contracts for transportation. That's a whole other discussion. Part of the way to solve that is to allow people that can walk to a school to go to that school. But trustees who have lived that history that you've talked about, they're very, very hesitant to even have that discussion right now because they've seen what can happen when you lose your school population. We need to have a certain number of students in a school to maintain programming within our, our budgets. To do that, you need to have a minimum number of students to offer diverse programming so that people can access the programs that they want. We do need to have mechanisms in place that we are ensuring we're not having oversubscription or over-enrollment at Westmount or at Westdale. Those are two that come up frequently. But once we land the new schools, once we've closed the schools that are supposed to close and we've got the right number of schools in the city, I believe that we will have great opportunities at every school and they will all be well-subscribed based on people in their neighborhood. We're nearing the end of our time today. I'm learning a lot and I really love to continue this conversation. And I hope that we can continue this conversation post-election. There's so much that the school board does. For parents looking to, well, parents and voters, um, we all have a stake in the future of our children's education. Trustees are really forgotten during the election. Nobody really talks about these races. It's only our kids' education and future. Nothing important. We really should be talking about potholes. How should people scrutinize the candidates? And what should they look for in a trustee candidate when they're voting? That's a bit of a tricky question. I would say the first advice is actually stop and pay attention to who's running in your area. Maybe spend a little time if you're listening. You, you've heard a bit about the role of trustee, but actually stop and think about what that role is, what influence they have. Most people just aren't aware. And it's fair. We're not in people's faces. We're not in the media as much as other politicians. So being aware of the role, 
We trustees set direction for the school board. Trustees decide schools, which schools will stay open and which will close. Trustees can approve or not approve new programming. When you think of it from that perspective, trustees do impact indirectly the day-to-day life of your child at school. They impact how well the school is in terms of a neighbor in your neighborhood, if you're living near it. So I would say, please stop and take the time to look at who's running. Look at what are their values? Why are they running? If someone's running because they're interested in politics, great for them. I don't think that's the reason that you should be a trustee at a school board. You're looking for people that have a skill set that you can see benefiting the entire school community. So while I have a background in education that I think is beneficial, I don't think we want all educators on the school board. So given your pool of candidates who are running, consider does someone have a financial or business background? We have to make a lot of financial decisions. Does someone have a policy type of background? Does someone come from another industry, whether it's healthcare or it's manufacturing or someone that might bring a different lens to how we run the schools. But then again, how does that align with their values? And does that align with your values? When you think about do you value community schools versus do you value larger schools with more programs? Those are the types of questions I encourage voters to ask themselves, but I just really encourage people to pay attention. It's It's frustrating. I'm not someone who's a keen politician. Uh, I was very uncomfortable running my first campaign. And I thought, well, we've done so much work getting out and trying to talk to people, get the message out. Surely we'll see an uptake in voter turnout. We did not. And it's so frustrating to see that it doesn't matter. I could stand on my head in the middle of the street, and I don't know that people would pay attention. People are busy. Right? And if it's not in your backyard or if it's not right in front of you, you maybe aren't paying attention to it, but this is something that actually is close to your backyard and it technically should be in front of you because it impacts the kids in our neighborhoods. It impacts our future. So please, please, please pay attention. Well, if you stand on your head over a pothole, I think you would get media coverage. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> but I don't know if it'd be the pothole or you standing on your head that would be the headline. I s- still wouldn't get coverage as a trustee. <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah. just that person standing in their head over a pothole. Two, so two more questions to wrap up. Uh, one thing that I think is really, u- really unique about the school board is student trustees and the quality of the student trustees. Mm-hmm. It's phenomenal. I've had the opportunity, Rudy Hines was, has recently been a student trustee and she's going to grade 12 in Bosnia right. this year. And I've been really fortunate that she has coffee at the place I have coffee. And just to sit and listen to her and her peers talk about school board policy mm-hmm. and their views on it. Could you tell us a little bit about that sort of unique role of the student trustee as a peer to the trustees, is involved in discussions, but also I think, I don't think people understand how phenomenal our young people are that are coming out of our education system and how aware and prepared they are for the world. I sat on transition committees at mm-hmm. the school board and then committees. And I look at these young people, and I'm, I wish I was as prepared and as informed as they are when I was their age. I would say the same. The, the student trustees that we've, that I've experienced are phenomenal, like absolutely phenomenal. I don't know how they do it because they really have a lot of preparation. They're only there for a year. Sometimes they can serve a second term but their term is a year long. So if I think of my learning curve that I've gone through over four years, they do it in two terms of the school year. While they're doing their schoolwork, they're doing that full-time. While they're running something called Student Senate, 
where they're bringing representatives from different schools to get student voice to bring back to the school board while they're working at the provincial level to help organize conferences. You wouldn't believe what they do. It's amazing. The real benefit of having the student trustees at the board table is having student voice. Now, these are exceptional students, so they're maybe not able to capture the voice of all of our students. It's incredible because they do go back to their schools. They do ask questions. They do consult with representatives from all schools so that they can really truly bring a well-rounded student voice to the board table. Right now, they are not technically allowed to make a motion. Now, a trustee can move a motion that they introduce. Their vote doesn't count. It's it's um. It's recorded in the minutes, it's but recorded. it doesn't weigh on the It doesn't legal. influence, yes, the final decision. And we are actually looking at, is there room to, to change that? The challenge is that they're elected by the student body, but how do we do a better job of making sure the entire student body is aware of the role of student trustee, that they understand what they're running for and participate in the election? Typically, we don't have a high level of participation in those elections. So if they're making decisions that impact the entire system, some that depends on taxpayers' dollars, you might argue that, well, they're not elected by the public. But if they're elected by their student, by the student body, then they have an important voice to bring to the table. But I just, I'm always amazed at their engagement, at their ability to bring ideas forward, to give feedback. They're absolutely incredible and it, it gives me hope. It, it shows that some of our programming and, and some of our students are highly successful in our system. At the coffee a while back, probably about a year and a half ago, maybe two years, we were discussing myself and a bunch of the youth about youth engagement at City Hall. And they asked me my idea on how to do part of that engagement. And I thought, I gave them this, I think you should, and I was writing it out and I thought, this is a great idea. And I'm sort of doing the, yeah, yeah, that's actually... Yeah, actually, that could work, yeah. And then one of them goes, have you considered? <laughs> and I actually took the page out of my thing and did the, threw it down. It's like, all my years of experience, I just got owned. Mm -hmm. And I say that with pride and how smart they are. And mm -hmm. I, I smiled and went, that is great. You're such a great young leader. Yeah. And... That's really what the school board is about, is preparing our young people to yes. lead in society in whatever role they choose to take in society. Mm -hmm. you got a four-year term ahead of you, and I'm going to ask you the question that I ask all the candidates. Okay. In 2022, mm -hmm. when I write a review of the term that's ahead of you, what are the three words that you hope I will use? And I should note to listeners that everybody else had the chance to prepare you did not get the chance to prepare for this. Three words? Three words. Got to give me a second. Three words. Term and review. Holy cow. This is something you need to sleep on. I would say productive. Can I put student success as one word? That's such a catchphrase, though. Productive. Student yeah, success really. works. I get student, the point that you're making. Student success, because that's a phrase, but really just a word. What would I want you to say? <laughs> and if my English teacher, whose class I skipped regularly, mm -hmm. and is a regular listener of this, Bruce Cook, English teacher at Glendale, he would be thinking it is my, because I would be stumbling too, and he would be doing to me the 
This is why you should have been coming to English class, Joey. <laughs> this is why you should have given me the question in advance. <laughs> the reason I'm struggling with it is we do so many different things and to capture, you know, three words that just embody what success would look like in four years, that that's big picture. So my brain is not going there immediately. Productive, if I can say why, sometimes boards can spin their wheels. And as you mentioned, the school board is a massive organization. You know, we have 50,000 students, we've got 5,000 plus employees. It moves very slowly. So to me, productive is success because it means we actually got something done that we plan to do. And four years seems like a long time, but in this world, it's not. I'm going to say student success, it seems like a cop-out. It, it truly is what we're all about. What I mean by that is improving graduation rates, improving how students are performing in, in all different subject areas, improving student engagement. I suppose uh, engaged would be maybe the last word relating to community parent engagement. If we could really find a way to engage the community, parents, families, and of course students, then everything else falls in line. Everything else will happen by magic. Don, that's the end of the questions that you weren't sent in advance. Yes. Thanks. <laughs> Do you have anything that you'd like to share with us before we wrap up today's podcast? I think the only other, you didn't ask me what my priorities were. That's what I thought you were going to ask me. Because I do, when I thought about running, it's, it's a challenging role. Sometimes it doesn't feel like there's a, a lot of gratitude from people, although being acclaimed, I felt very honored to have been acclaimed. And it is, it can be a lot of work. When it's a lot of work and I'm like, why am I doing this? When I was deciding to run, I had to think, why am I doing this? And what would I want to achieve in the next four years? One of the areas that I feel like, two areas that, that I really would like to see a focus on, one is communication. And when I was traveling last year, I noticed every airline has customer service standards. If you go into a healthcare institution, they have patient care standards. What can you expect when you come into this organization or work with this organization? And I have said to the board, the director, I don't feel like we have that as a school board. So parents, families, students, teachers, everybody when they walk into one of our buildings, should know what to expect, and they should be high expectations. We should perform. We should deliver. So I would like to see communication standards and some sort of customer service standards, but phrased differently, that really resonates with people, that really meets their needs, their information needs, their relationship needs, their collaboration needs, so that they can be involved in the school communities. That's a major goal for the next four years. The other is the issue, and I hate to use the word bullying because it has a very specific connotation, but we'll, we'll say violent behavior, bullying, unwanted attention that can happen, and repeated or not. And I've started saying whenever we hear a suspension or an expulsion report, trustees have to make decisions regarding expulsion, so we hear a whole case. There's often this thing called mitigating circumstances. So. What are the mitigating circumstances for this student, and should that reduce what's happening or the, the penalty for whatever happened? I would say violence is violence. And if you're doing something to another person, intended or not, mitigating circumstances or not, we need to intervene. So I'm not saying we need to punish, but we need to have an intervention for both the perpetrator and for the victim. Because I've had stories where something goes unnoticed and it's days or a week later when a parent says, "My I was putting my child to bed and they told me this happened last week and this horrific 
thing happened in the schoolyard. And for that child, they've been traumatized. They haven't had anyone to talk to. That can have long-term impacts on the victim. It may not seem like a big deal to an adult, but these are kids. So I really want to see us look at who do we have in our organization who could respond and not just say, hey, are you doing okay? But someone who has a background in child psychology or social work or some of those professionals who can really do a a check-in. And I know there's challenges associated with it because technically I believe if we wanted to do something like that, we might need parent approval or parents have to agree to it. But I feel like we should be able to work around that because if they're going to be in our school and we're saying that our schools are safe, we need to take steps to make sure people feel safe and that things don't happen a second time, intended or not, mitigating circumstances or not. I'm hoping to get somewhere with that dialogue. Again, I don't, I don't control the outcome, but that's something that I want to push forward. Don, thank you very much, and thank you for sharing that. And you've given us such an understanding of the role of trustee and an understanding of what's happening at the school board. I've learned a lot today. It makes me wish that I had the time to watch board live streams, but I suspect that even watching the streams, I wouldn't get the understanding that I received today. Thank you so much for joining us today on this, the 155 podcast, but yours was not a candidate job interview. We actually had a good discussion. Right. Thank you so much for having me. And I want to thank the Terry Berry branch of the Public Library where we recorded this podcast today. This has been episode 17 of the Public Records, the 155 podcast, our interviews with candidates in Hamilton's 2018 municipal election. Visit thepublicrecord.ca for more podcasts and more election coverage. The Public Record is Hamilton's local, independent, reader-funded news outlet. This podcast is made possible by members of the Public Records Press Club. Visit thepublicrecord.ca to learn more and listen to all episodes of the 155 podcast. Sign up for our newsletter and stay informed. The Public Record is a member of the National News Media Council, a voluntary self-regulatory organization that deals with journalistic practices and ethical behavior. To learn more about the Media Council, visit the Media Council at mediacouncil.ca. Thank you for listening. See you at the polls on October 22nd.